we look at the holistic employee experience. So we look at everything that's connected to people's, you know, society, culture, uh, the organization, leadership, technology. And we say, how is this driving people forward and helping them fulfill their potential? Or how is it holding them back? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm learning from Ben Witter. Ben Witter is an employee experience expert. He works with a number of global companies helping the CEOs fix their employee experience so that it's in keeping with their preferred customer experience and their brand. He's a best-selling author. In fact, he has a new book out, which is today number one on Amazon in the UK, Human Experience at Work. It's about what drives performance in people-focused organizations. So a fantastic book, go grab your copy. But today we're talking about Ben's mission and he would like to see HR own the commercial metrics inside an organization and step away from recruitment and sickness absence and typical HR metrics and instead be responsible for innovation and profitability and customer satisfaction and productivity, because he thinks that's where employee experience takes an organization. So we have a fantastic conversation today. We talk about where the research, where his research takes him, what tactical examples he's got from some of the organizations he's worked with that are in his book. And also we have an interesting conversation about hybrid work and where, where that might take us as employees start to return to the office. So a fantastic conversation with Ben. I learned loads. I'm sure you will too. Hi, my name is Ben Wisser. I'm author of Employee Experience and Human Experience at Work, and I run Hex Organization. Uh, we support clients around the world to develop holistic, human-centered, and experience-driven business strategies. And Ben, what size organizations do you typically work with? It tends to be uh, global multinational uh, corporations. Um, those are the ones that kind of beat a path to our door in terms of uh, some of the services that we provide from kind of consulting to keynote speeches to uh, ongoing coaching relationships. Um, and they're more complicated and complex, so naturally there's a lot more challenges there when you start to think about okay, we have a workforce that is human. <laughs> we need to really kind of embrace that. So how do we do that on a, on a huge level? How are you now the worldwide expert that you are in helping them solve these difficult challenges? What's the, what's the backstory that gets you to here helping 
global companies fix this? Well, it's a long one. Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> We've got time. To, to, to be honest, I, I could have been this guy, you know, 15 minutes into into my HR uh, career look because I was working in global companies and it's very obvious when you start working in HR that there's there's a lot of issues in the way that that function is positioned by the CEO and the C-suite into the business. It naturally creates this kind of target on its back for employees to point at and say it's their fault or it's their project or it's their thing. It's not our thing. It's not our growth. It's not our policy. So I think that was that was interesting. But I've, I've had a career which which has spanned different sectors, uh, won plenty of awards in terms of my approach that, that I, I bring to different organizations, uh, from best in the UK projects and programs um, to you know receiving royal visits as acknowledgement of some great work that we did. Um, but I suppose the global experience started when I, I moved to China as a director at the University of Nottingham. So I got to work with some fantastic global organizations in, in developing this concept of employee experience. Because before you had customer experience, and that's well documented, that's well established, but you never really had anything on the employee side. You had these dull things like employee engagement, which, which you know, employees don't talk about employee engagement. They talk about their experiences. Uh, but for whatever reason, HR and, and management folks, they've really been focused on this employee engagement, employee engagement, where I think now we're moving to a position that is really quite strong and aligned to to the business, which is we're focused on experiences, you know, brand, product, customer, consumer, shareholder, and finally now employees are getting the true respect that they deserve. So that started that, that kind of research journey. I started sharing and went on a world tour before I even had a book to start <laughs> talking about these ideas in some like 30 countries. And then the corporations started booking me and then um, uh, all manner of different organizations wanted to understand this idea more. So I, I started working with them to develop it even further, um, which has led to two books now, which, uh, you know, great, great case studies in there from, you know, Starbucks to Airbnb to Ford. Uh, to uh, GSK, all these you know, huge companies that are, that are either starting their employee experience journey or they're well on the way to being these world-class brands. Where do they start? Do they start in a small division or do they start something small globally? What's the best place to start? It depends on the context. Um, if you're new to the field, it usually starts off with some form of education for uh, leadership teams and and others. You know, sometimes a CEO goes to a conference, hears about employee experience, and then <laughs> comes back and it's okay. We're doing it now. Let's set up a team. Um, that tends to be a, a reaction that we see. Uh, so they usually put in some form of uh, philosophy or department into the structure to say, okay, we need to develop this capability further, and then it spreads to all support functions if they do it well. So you start usually from a position of HR or organizational culture, and then it starts to consume the entire support functions, IT, digital, catering, estates, facilities, travel, all of those things will start to connect to this idea of looking after um, experiences. For the employees. And when the CEO is at that conference, what problems are in his mind? What is he thinking, if I do this, I will solve this problem? What problems are, or what problems are people ringing you up with? I think the big, the big one, so I did some research and I helped summarize some work from The Economist last year. 
and it's still it's still these these things that are coming up. So it's alignment. So support functions are often just doing their own thing, and they're they're not very very good at collaborating sometimes. So I think that's a big challenge. So you have all this investment in in kind of um, programs and projects and technology, but then they see it through, and it's like, okay, what was the real value of this? What's the real impact? And as you go through that journey, you realize that you know some things are just not connected. You don't have the right people working together. Uh, and that creates a, a lot of issues um, in and of itself. So I think those are the big challenges in terms of, you know, it's still about growth. It's still about delivering business outcomes. But it could be that maybe engagement or morale or the way colleagues work together internally is not as efficient, effective, or as impactful as it could be. And then that starts to hit sales, margins, profit, and all the, the things that CEOs care about. <laughs> and then they, um, they start to look within to, to challenge that, really. And so what, what types of work are you doing? What levers are you pulling? You know, you said there's sort of a philosophy of employee engagement, but then, you know, you're saying it's spreading through support teams. So, like, so what, what are some tactical examples of things that people do that then have this profound impact? I think number one, it's, it's installing that mindset where humans and their experiences are vitally important. So rather than seeing a a new process or a new communication or a new policy as this thing that is, you know, HR-driven, HR-centric, organization-centric, they're saying, actually, we need to think about how this lands and impacts our people. So it's transforming that, that, that little policy that could have a bigger impact into an experience. So that could be a, any type of policy within the business. So I think mindset is huge. Because we see uh, we see experiences rather than the new HR policy, which is announced to, the, to every man and his dog. One of the things that struck me looking at reading some of the stuff you'd written is about the Australian firm that came up with a visual employment contract. Yeah, and and I was struck. I, I it took me back to when I was at Pier One, and we were creating the UK business. So we went out to find some employment lawyers, and we said, okay, let's have an employment contract and a staff handbook because we need those. And what we got back was. 48 pages i think in the employment handbook which is basically here's a list of all the things we think you're already guilty of but we haven't caught you doing yet yeah. and this is what we're going to do to you when we catch you and it and it was you know so that the lawyers could never say in the future well you weren't warned or you know we have you know we covered everything and so you know and then you had the sign to say you'd read it before you could come onto the premises and it was the most depressing thing in the world people would read it and go have I really, like I was excited about joining this company. Now you've made me read this employment contract and it's just made me miserable. I mean, you know, it changed completely people's perception of how they thought the company thought about them. You know, I thought you trusted me. Now I've read the handbook and obviously you don't. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. and so looking at this, that sort of visual employment contract, I just thought, oh, that's just sensational because it's not hard to do, but then it changes it from a, how, my expectation of it to, an experience of something completely different. Like, you know, we do trust you. Yeah. And, and again, that's the outcome because business is all about trust and relationships. And if you're doing anything that negatively impacts that, then it needs to be challenged um, in a profound way. The problem is most organizations won't go into that territory because it's either too difficult or maybe the, the leadership team isn't bought into that change. But that was Oricon. In, uh, they're an engineering consulting firm in Australia one of Australia's top employers. And 
you know, that visual contract is just, you know, it's a masterclass because they, they were, you know, they started the same journey that most HR teams or, or employee experience teams would start. They say, okay, this contract just isn't working for us, similar to your experience, and we need to do something about it. That's where most HR teams would stop because they start to understand how difficult it is to change. They have to have everything wrapped up in legality and legalese. They have to make sure, yeah, there's so many risks associated with that. They just wouldn't do it because <laughs> they've got other yes. things to do. But they pushed through those barriers and they said, we're going to do it. And in doing so, we're going to make a statement about the future of work because, you know, we need to create something that's more engaging because people weren't reading the contract in the first place. So they brought together the right team, the right people, they brought together one of the top legal professors in Australia and they said, let's get in a room, let's sort this out and let's figure out a pathway to achieve what we want to achieve, which is an engaging employment contract that actually employees will read and they enjoy reading. Yes. <laughs> it sounds impossible, but they managed it. And uh, that's the kind of mindset we bring to employee experience and, and the human experience in that any policy any practice, any approach, we can challenge it and reshape it into something that delivers really strong human and business outcomes. Uh, because, again, the communication and marketing that runs alongside it, you're getting millions of hits on these great campaigns that originate from within the employee experience. And that's what the savvy businesses are doing now to build their brand and their growth. Well, when I was at Pier 1, I think maybe 65% or even 70% of the PR the, you know, the, the earned media that we got was not talking about what we did, but how we did it. Yes. Yeah. And so, because, you know, it just feels like it doesn't get any better. You know, every year Gallup do their sort of global state of employee engagement and it doesn't yeah, get any They've better. got a great business model, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was talking to some guys this morning um, and, you know, maybe it doesn't get any better. Do you think it get, you know, like, you know, most people work in companies for whom, what they do every day is a job and it, you know, it's okay. And then they retire, you know, you know, Nick Marks, I don't know if you know, Nick Marks, um, he had to, he was sharing some data at a summit, uh, that we ran here last September. And it was, it was some data around employee happiness from Japan, female employees in Japan. And they, they said everything they'd done over the last, you know, the day or week or whatever it was. And, and there were two things at the bottom of the list, the, the the least favorite thing they did was work. Sorry, it was it was commuting, and the second least favorite thing they did was work. And so you could see you could see why people would want in that circumstance why you could what people would want to work from home, because if commuting is the tax I pay to come to work, and I hate commuting, and I'm not really that fond of work, I'm, you give me the option to not commute, and I'll probably take it. Japan's interesting. So we have. Uh some clients in Japan. Uh, I lived out there for about a year and a survey, a national survey on one of the big TV stations, they, they ranked the importance of things in Japanese life, like daily Japanese life. And number one, by an absolute country mile, was work. It took, took precedence over every single thing, everything else in that particular context. Number two, which was you know light years away from number one, was family. So again, understanding that, and once you've experienced it in Japan, it's, it's really quite profound in terms of the Japanese approach to work and why they, you know, they'll finish it maybe at six o'clock, but then the work will continue in, in restaurants and bars and other places uh, because 
it's just part of the structure and the, and the like the order of society there. So I think you have to look around the holistic experience of, of all these different things. So the importance versus they're going to do that community anyway because work is super important. So they don't really care about that. But if we can give them more flexibility, choice, and control over how they do that work, well, that's, you know, everyone's a winner. The Japanese government had a little bit of an issue with presenteeism over the last few years. So they introduced uh, premium Fridays, uh-huh. uh, which means they can workers can take a day off on Friday and, and just go and do what they like or do something else. I think it was once a month. But the problem in Japan and the Japanese culture was that no one took it. <laughs> so this is like this is a government-mandated intervention to say, rest, relax, go and do your hobbies. And the Japanese people who are workers, they just said, no, we're not going to do that because we feel like it's bringing dishonor on us or there's different things in play there. So this is what we talk about in employee experience in that we look at the holistic employee experience. So we look at everything that's connected to people's, you know, society, culture, uh, the organization, leadership, technology. And we say, how is this driving people forward and helping them fulfill their potential? Or how is it holding them back? And then we get to work on that hex. And what sort of measures do you put in place to show, to measure employee experience? For me, the, the biggest one is, is business results. Mm-hmm. So it's the same as, as customer experience. In that if you're developing and investing in your customer experience, you would expect to see some return with you know, new business coming in, you know, retained clients or customers, new customers, new referrals, all of that good stuff. And it's the same for employee experience. Um, we get beyond the HR stuff. So lower staff churn, lower sick rate. Yeah, all, yeah. all of that stuff, uh, uh, quality of hire, so the quality of people that you, you can attract for your particular brand. Uh, but the other, th- but the main thing, I, I suppose, is, is still we're claiming some of those business results. <laughs> so, you know, HR would typically hide behind, you know, turnover, retention, engagement, sickness, absence, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, attendance at training courses. <laughs> you know, can you imagine that? Oh, it's very successful. We had 100% attendance of a mandatory training program. Wonderful. Well, I have to say, I have to say you laugh, but I, I've spent time with some marketing departments whose metric is that they spent the budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that they delivered sales, but that they succeed, 100% success in spending the money we were allocated. It's like, okay, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's that's what you want to measure. It's as it's as good as mandatory att- attendance at mandatory training events. Oh. But so the business results you're claiming though are improvements in innovation, improvements in profitability, customer satisfaction, and productivity. Yeah, so that's what the research backs up in terms of these are really core outcomes of of a positive employee experience. Because the, the connection between the employee experience and the customer experience becomes abundantly clear in that you know the level investment in the employee experience is driving a, a positive customer experience and then the business results that that brings. So that whole thing about you can't nobody can love a customer until they love the company. Yeah, I think I think that holds true in, in a lot of respects. Um, it starts from within. You know, whatever company and whatever business sector you're in. Uh, it naturally starts from 
where your employees are coming from. If they feel good about the brand and they're in a space where they can give their best performance, then inevitably you're going to see the returns from that. But if they're not feeling good about the brand, they're not feeling an emotional connection, then they're not going to give as much as they could do. Um, and this is, you know, this is why we have such strong, purposeful, and mission-driven companies emerging within the economy that are absolutely kind of focused on doing big things because it's attractive. You know, human beings, uh, we buy into that kind of growth journey. And what's your what's your favourite client story? I mean, I've got a, quite a few. I think that there's interesting ones where you you meet or work with a CEO and immediately the penny drops. And they will go back to the organization and start to transform it from the bottom up. You know, the way that they approach things. Because I suppose what we can do and, and what we're good at is presenting the information and saying, look, as a reflection of your company, if you are human-centered, experience-driven, these are the experiences you're creating. But look at this policy over here and look at what it's doing. <laughs> you know, it's doing a massive disservice to your brand. Uh, is there anything you want to do about it? And you know, nine times out of 10, they haven't spotted it because they've got blind spots. You know, they've been in the context for so long, they just haven't spotted it. So there's one CEO who just went back and completely cleaned house in terms of how they were approaching, you know, the workforce and how they were working with uh, the workforce as partners. Before, it was very much them and us. So you had senior management on one side, HR in the middle like a punching bag, and employees on the other side. Whereas once they saw the connection between humans and experiences and how that connects to the brand and bottom line, it was like, okay, yeah, they get it, absolutely. And that prompted massive action, which a CEO can take. When we work with middle managers, it tends to take a lot longer to to affect change sometimes because they have to be patient, they have to build buy-in, they have to educate people. Um, But if you can work with a CEO, well, you can make change happen very, very quickly. And so what's been your – what's been – the favorite CEO story journey? I'll give you one from my current book, Human Experience at Work, available now. Yeah. came out yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> available from Amazon and all good booksellers. <laughs> all good bookshops, yeah. So this is a company in, um, in China. So I spent a lot of time with uh, the CEO. Uh, yeah. It's a company called Fortile Group. They're the, huh? uh, one of the biggest um, white goods um manufacturers in in asia right now and it's a totally human-centered company so um to give you an indication of of where where they're they're at they don't have a a hr function so they have something more like a people and culture function but as it happens in china when you put people and culture together you get the word humanity Uh uh-huh their business philosophy is to bring happiness to the homes of millions of people and they you know, to do that, they started to look at, okay, how do we bring happiness and enable happiness for our workforce as a, as a first priority? So, again, it just it dictates a lot of their approach in terms of the way that they connect with the workforce. Uh, and the CEO leads it from the absolute top. So they don't have a CHRO, they don't have a chief people officer because he takes that role as his own. And he says, if this organization isn't fulfilling its, its mission and its brand purpose, then he's responsible. So he's very much, you know, hands-on in the employee experience as, as much as the customer experience. And that's great. It's kind of like um, Howard Schultz at Starbucks as well. He takes a similar approach with his workforce. Uh, and you can see the results. It's, it's very impressive. And so that's pushing things down so that 
anybody in the organization can spot something which is discordant with what the CEO is saying? What's the mechanism for spotting those things and fixing them? This is a, this is a great thing. So from my first book, Employee Experience, it was more about the truth. As a brand, you can understand your purpose, your mission, your values, the ones you commit to on the outside of the brand, to your consumers and to your shareholders or your customers, whoever it may be. But the problem most organizations have is how do they bring that truth, purpose, mission, and values inside their business and connect it in a meaningful way to their workforce? And again, you know, we've you know, tried HR approaches and, and all these different things, but they haven't really cracked it in terms of how do you make sure that what you promise to your key stakeholders, customers and shareholders, is the absolute truth? Because most organizations that we've learned through the pandemic, you know, they're telling rotten lies to their workers. Uh, they say they stand for one thing, but, you know, a crisis hits and you find out absolutely they don't stand for that at all. <laughs> in fact, you know, we're going to terminate you on a Zoom call in front of, you know, 499 other peers. Yeah, it's just the way you treat people, I think, is so fundamentally important. So I think that's what that brand questions in a really good way is that how does what we do on the customer experience and the employee experience completely align with our truth? And if it doesn't align with our truth, we need to fix it quickly. And so how big is that organization? Uh, a few thousand employees, yeah. Okay. And so what are, are there some small tactical things that they did that had a sort of an outrageous impact? Or, or things they were just doing that they hadn't thought about? And when they gave it some thought, it was easy to see that they were just shooting themselves in the foot. For, for me, one of the biggest things in that particular context was, um, you know, making sure that the the business model was fit for the context. So the culture in China is very different to the West, but they've developed a strong core. So that everything they do, whether it's training and development, whether it's HR policy, whether it's, you know, benefits and, and staff welfare, it all comes back to what they're trying to promote within the workforce. And actually, they've taken on a a more active role in terms of character development as well. So they want to promote good morality and, and other things, which is a criticism of a lot of business schools in that, you, yeah, you get the, the theory and, and some of the, the elements of, of how to run a business, but you don't get that realistic character development, which is going to help you when you're going through tough times as a business as an entrepreneur. So I think that's what they've done at a deep level than any other organization I've seen in that, they're serious about people's success in life and that they're willing to, to get their skin in the game and say, we're going to help you build your character as well as your professional reputation. And I think that's what they do very, very well. How do they do that then? Well, I mean, it, it just comes back to you know, the way they uh, onboard people from the way uh -huh. that they recruit people to the way that they train people, um, the way that they develop their leaders, uh, the leadership program. Uh, the way they hire and, and promote people up to the next level as well. Uh, similar to Fabulous Hot Pot Restaurant, it's got the best customer experience in the world, bar none. Absolutely right. sensational. It, it, I don't think any Western brand can compete with it in any context. Uh, I'm that serious because I've, I've been a loyal customer for a few years <laughs> and I've seen them in action and I'm just like, this is, this is mind-blowing. So it's like you walk into the restaurant and the experience begins. While you're waiting for your table, you, you, ladies can get a manicure or a pedicure. 
Uh, you know, you can play games. The kids can go in the nursery while you're waiting for your table. It's just absolutely sensational. You can watch a movie on the big screen cinema that they have while you're waiting to go in and have your meal simply because the queues are so long because everyone wants to eat there. And is the food sensational or is it just they've created an experience which is sensational? The food is great as well. So they've got a quality product in there, but the service takes it to world-class level as well because you could do a very good model of a hot pot restaurant, which it is. And um, But if you don't deliver it with the same service, then it's just not going to be that experience. And again, the way they they do that is just, you know, the way they recruit restaurant managers. You know, you've had to be in the brand for a while and you've had to have experienced all 50 roles within the business. You know, from entertainment to hospitality to reception to serving, very similar to Starbucks in that you have to have that experience of, of, you know, all those different tasks before you can even start to to specialize, uh, which I thought was very interesting. So I like that. I like that deep commitment to the human experience and there's so many examples that can bring it to life, regardless of context. You know, you can be a UK brand. Uh, I talk about Timson's, uh, Timson in my new book, uh-huh. where they have, you know, they, they don't have a HR department because they thought it was uh, divisory within their business. Uh, and, you know, they, re- recruit, uh, they recruit prisoners for, you know, 3,000 shops or 5,000 shops across the UK. I'm like, that is just such a, a phenomenal commitment. And one of the values is don't steal. <laughs> like, so you, but, you know, it's, a, it's like an internal um, connection point where they can, you know, there's this humor in it, but there's a real message around, you know, keep yourself on the straight and narrow and you'll do well within this company and we'll support you. So I just like brands that really strongly connect things as opposed to just uh, buying some new technology or creating some programming isolation that doesn't reinforce what a brand really is all about. Uh-huh. I, I think Timpsons is a great model, isn't it? It's you know, it's that they they are fishing for talent where nobody else is fishing. Yeah. And 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 therefore, you know, that for them there is no war on talent. There are probably more people applying than they can hire. And, and it's interesting because I remember speaking to the head of HR for McDonald's in the Republic of Ireland, and I said to him, Who's your ideal employee? And he said well, we know that the stores do better when we've got great managers. Yeah. And so there's a direct correlation. And so I said, and so who's the great manager? And he said, the great manager is somebody who leaves school without any qualifications, but then realizes they'd like to turn their life around. And what we do is we've created an employee experience which pulls them into McDonald's for a few years, three to five years, and then changes their lives and gives them life skills and out they go out the other side. And again, it was that we're now ta- we're now fishing in a pool that nobody else is fishing in, and we've created an experience that pulls in the best people that we could possibly have to fill our stores, and, and we've made it and we've made it work and and it'll it can carry on scaling. I visited McDonald's in Chicago and I started to learn about, I think one of the best performing markets in the world was the UK at that time. And if you look at the way the UK was was run and managed, there was a big emphasis on your skills, uh, future skills, uh, the university, Hamburger University. So, you know, giving people foundation degrees. Uh, so a real strong investment. And they were speaking direct to their contacts, as you say, speaking to that talent audience that they wanted to attract and nurture and then they in return they got some great performance out of that particular workforce 
And again, it continues in, in that mold um, as we speak now. That's a great one in terms of investment in training. But then you look at the other parts of the employee experience, you think, okay, we've got the McStrikes <laughs> and uh, you've got fighting for, for you know, living wage and, and, and increases in wages. I'm like, okay, you know, does that undo the work on this side of the employee experience? Absolutely not. But could they do better? Absolutely, they could if they started working with their workforce in a in more of a partnership based way. So I think even brands like McDonald's, you know, heralded for operational excellence, and they've done some fabulous work on training and investment. You can still see quite abundantly clear the gaps that they have, and you know, if there's a little bit of will, they can transform that quite quickly, um, just like Amazon's done. So Amazon, their mission used to be they wanted to be. Earth's most customer-centric company. I'm like, okay, that's great, but you're only you're only focused on one side of the story, and that's why they've they've got so many employee relations issues, uh, because they've been fixated on customer centricity above human centricity. But now they've changed, so they want to become. Uh, Bezos announced this recently in his shareholder letter to say we want to become Earth's most customer-centric company, but also a safest company and Earth's um, top best employer. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, so with 500,000 plus employees, that's quite a significant statement of intent and a huge about turn in their business strategy. It's, it's good for us. Certainly good for us who focus on employee experience, that's for sure, because it's a great example. <laughs> yeah, because they wouldn't be making that change if they didn't think it would have a positive and e- economic impact on their business. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it could be that the cost is too much to bear as well in terms of, you know, they're in the news pretty much on a weekly basis because of the, the workforce and the the perception of the way that workforce is treated. There's parliamentary inquiries, congressional hearings. There's, there's all sorts of pressure on that business to transform. And But I'm glad they've been so proactive about it and, and Bezos has, has looked at it and said, okay, um, Let's do this in a in a really powerful way. They contacted me in when was it 2018? They wanted to fly me to the the HQ, and um, it was the first time they'd ever brought together their employee experience team on a global basis at that point. Uh, so again, even businesses like Amazon, they're maybe two or three years into uh, their employee experience journey, they've got heads of employee experience, but they're now starting to seriously connect the dots across the business, which is great. Ben. There's another topic which I'd love to pick your brains on, which is uh, in the news at the moment, which is, you know, most of the world worked in an office. Then most of the world has worked at home for more than 12 months. What what does a return to work look like? Is it is it hybrid? Is it the office? Is it fully remote? Is it, you know, if you're thinking about it from an employee experience perspective, what should people be thinking? What's your personal view? I think on one side of this kind of discussion, you have employees who are overwhelmingly saying, we want to go back to something different. We don't want the old way of doing things. So the vast majority are opting to say, okay, three days um, at home, maybe two days in the office for high impact work or or different uh, connection building events. That seems to be the line that's being drawn by employees and the workers and and. Uh, again, global research, every single study I've seen is saying, look, we want a better balance between home and work and, and you can stick that commute as well. <laughs> they just don't <laughs> like that commute. 
trying to claw that back from them now is going to be very difficult for CEOs and, and businesses. And there are some that are digging their heels in and saying, we want everybody back in the workplace and a workplace is the only place for our workforce. Again, if they can kind of uh, contain that around their specific business aims, if they can you know, recruit from the talent pool that enjoys that type of experience, then okay, that could be successful as well. But I think for the vast majority, it's going to be a, a hybrid experience from, from here on in. It would take a brave CEO to kind of come back and say, okay, no, 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 no. You know, that experience you've had for, for over a year or so, that level of freedom and autonomy and control maybe you've had, that better quality of life with your family, all the you know, workers are working more and actually anxiety is, is on the increase again. Yeah, it'd be hard to take that back from them. So I think the best is going to be some form of, of hybrid experience for a lot of employers, um, unless you're maybe a Netflix that wants to, you know, bring people back en masse and say, look, uh, this is the way our business runs. We have some clear um, guidelines and objectives here and they can connect with the talent that enjoys coming together and working with people in close proximity. Then I think they'll do fine as well. Uh, I don't think it's a, an either or or a them and a them and us. Um, but I still think the majority will, will kind of find this way to a, a hybrid experience. Is that, if if most businesses aren't great experiences, is that, and if your commute is a tax that you pay to go to work, is that is that really just employer employees saying, work's just a bit shit, and therefore <laughs> I'm not prepared to pay my commute tax to come in? If you yeah. you know if you if you created a great you know it's not even you know the Netflix thing. I'm just thinking. It's almost like our employees are such that they would want to come together and work in an office with other people. If you're that type of person, this is our type of company. It's a really clear mm-hmm. statement, whereas maybe the others are going, shit, we can't, we can't make them all come back in because they leave and we're not very – we're just a bit crap. So it would be really hard to replace half of them. So we'll just, we'll, just go, we'll just go a bit hybrid because we're worried that people might quit. Yeah, uh, and again, it's, it's, there's going to be a trade-off there somewhere because uh, you know I think the authorities will find a way to tax homework in as well at some point. I think that's um, that's definitely in the pipeline. A lot of the bankers have already put put together a policy and proposal uh, to the treasury to say, look, um, you know, you can you can leave a, a tax for for homeworkers in in particular to try and claw some of that that spend back. Um, but I still don't think that's a good approach. It's like employees have been given a real taste of freedom and, and now we're going to find a way to tax it and you know make sure that they don't get away with too much. Um, but certainly the commuting experience, that is a tax for a lot of people. And like you say, if they're going to a great organization on a great mission, great brand, uh, great colleagues, then you do want to go back to that to a certain extent. And people will be missing that experience of, of working so closely uh, with people, that's part of you know why you go to great brands um, to experience them, as opposed to just sitting at home and doing your own thing, maybe. Uh, so yeah, it, it comes down to uh, is is it is the employee experience creating such a, a level of connection that it does make people want to pay that commuting tax? I think it's a nice way to look at it actually. Well, and and because I I then think well, if I used to pay you twenty five percent premium because I employed you in London. And now you either don't come into the office and therefore wouldn't need to, you know, whether where you live is your decision 
why would I pay you? Why would I pay people a premium yeah. if I no longer have an office? In fact, I don't have to hire people. I can hire people wherever. I can hire the cheapest people I can find mm-hmm. if I don't have an office and we're fully remote. It's a delegate path to walk for CEOs because they could be on the wrong side of history with this one. Some CEOs will be getting out there and saying, look, I don't care where you work, where you're from, what your background is, we're going to pay you, you know, for the job that you do. Whether you're in Silicon Valley, whether you're in London, or whether you're in uh, New Delhi, we don't care. We're going to pay you for the job. And some are actually doing that. I think Spotify and, and others, Atlassian, I think, have, have started to make moves in that direction as well. So there will be this broad body of companies moving away and saying, look, we're just going to do what's right by people and uh, forget about these kind of minimum or you know, these premium payments. If you're working for us, if you're making an impact, you're going to get paid uh, as you would expect to get paid. And then there's others. <laughs> there's always a second category that will be looking at, you know, where can we find the cheapest labor? Uh, where can we um, you know, increase our profit margins uh, with the lowest cost possible? Uh, and then I think you know, that creates a, a different set of issues for that business going forward as well. We've seen the, the uproar that's been caused from Basecamp this week and last week, which is fascinating. Have you seen that one? Incredible. Yes. Incredible. What's your take on that? Because they've, what, what somebody was saying to, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't read the latest numbers. I know some people had quit, but somebody was saying to me this morning that half the staff have decided to go. Last time, so the last update I did, it was one third of the workforce. So okay. it may have kind of gone up to half given the level of, social media sharing and and people were were really feeling strongly about that it seems odd because they were definitely heralded as an organization with a great employee experience and Mm. i read i read the memo and i thought okay you know let's not have debates about politics on i guess company slack channel or whatever the equivalent is and i thought okay well i can't I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I could personally be offended by that if I was an employee in that business. And yet, some of them have obviously been deeply offended and felt felt they had to leave. There are plenty of other places where you could have a political debate. Should you wish to have one, you don't need to have it on the company Slack channel, surely. Yeah, and you can see that. But it was just everything about it was just poorly executed. Into because you, you could deliver that message in a very different way. And actually, there's a, there's a question mark around, do you need to show that message publicly? Maybe that's more of an internal thing. But it, it comes down to this, this fine line and delicate balance when, you know, Airbnb, Spotify, all these, you know, cool companies, progressive companies, they do act with absolute transparency around what they're doing. But they're usually doing it for really, really positive wins. <laughs> Not for things like this. Yeah. You know, Maybe there's some kind of mix up there with the communication department or something, but if it just feels like the whole thing, the way they kind of plan this campaign message, whatever they were doing, is just back, backfired in a, in a spectacular way, without too much internal co-creation or consultation. Which, you know, that's the cornerstone of of a great human-centered brand, that level of co-creation. So it's not a surprise, but this seems to have just taken everybody by surprise. And they feel betrayed because of you know, the, the predominant culture of the organization. Yeah. Because they've literally done an absolute about turn in terms of all of their philosophy up to this point. The only one thing that they kept with that announcement was transparency. And it hasn't worked for them, <laughs> not, on this, not on this occasion. But I feel and for it, the people involved. 
Well, and it's a, I mean, when it was 37 Signals some years ago, it was like, you know, the, the, the impact that, and I think at the time they only had 16 employees, it was staggering the impact that such a small company could have globally on employee experience and the way people thought about, thought about work. Yeah, you can criticize the execution. You can criticize the ideas. I think that's all fair game. Uh, maybe it's a, a CEO mistake because we are human. We get things wrong from time to time. <laughs> Even CEOs of really powerful and popular companies. But I think the big thing for me is, you know, you've, you've got to move forward with your workforce. And if you can't do that as a fundamental step, then any announcement is going to be quite um, challenging as well. Uh, this wasn't a particularly positive statement of intent. Uh, it could have been in terms of, you know, we're going to have professional, impactful relationships and we're not going to focus on all this this nonsense that we can't control. It could have been a really powerful message, but the way it's delivered and the way it's been created and shaped, it's just, yeah, I think it came as a bullet out of the blue. People didn't expect it and they've reacted very emotionally to it. Um, there were better ways to do that one, I suppose. Yeah. Ben, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I don't know if there is anything too significant because I think as you go through life, you explore and discover your own truth. So what you stand for, you know, what your purpose is, because we're not given a purpose at birth. We have to spend many years of toil and pain and, you know, some pleasure <laughs> trying to find out what we're here on earth to do because uh, there's just such a short amount of time. But I suppose, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, I wish I understood what I'm here to do quicker. But you can't do because you have to have the experiences that enable you to become the person you ultimately become. So I've written two books on this, and that has become like my purpose, my career, my mission, my focus. But I had to experience 15 years of HR, 15 years as an employee to write these books. I could not in no way, shape, or form, write these books without doing that. Yeah, I can go and talk to, do research, and you know, talk to uh, heads of employee experience or CEOs about you know, what they would do, but I really wouldn't understand it, and it, it, it would just be a, a reference manual, really. But what I put in my books is it all connects to my experience and the challenges and, and the, the situations I faced as well, which I, I think that's a big thing. So I suppose... Yeah, we, we have to really focus on what our purpose is, what our mission is, and what our values are in life. And I think when you get that, then you become, you know, something that you didn't think was possible. And you achieve things that you didn't think were possible. You know, um, that's the big kind of lesson for me. So I spend a lot of time still trying to figure out, you know, how do I evolve this truth and have even more of an impact? Fantastic. Um, and as well as human experience at work available from all good booksellers all great bookshops yeah number one and, on amazon right now it's great <laughs> and that just in the uk at the minute you've got later in the month for us and canada Tw uh, 25th for us usa and canada everywhere else it's out now fantastic what other books have inspired you along the way or other books that you think people ex people interested in employee experience should pick up Two books came to mind when you said that. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, Self-Reliance and Other Essays, and Benjamin Franklin, The Autobiography. Why those two books? They're 
I, I would only if I did this podcast only to get book recommendations, it would absolutely be worth my while. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, I've, not, I've not read either of those. So uh, I'll go and uh, I'll go and get a copy of both of those. But why why recommend those two books? Well, I think Emerson was onto something when he talked about self reliance um, as a part of the human experience. So ultimately, you know, you're born with a network, a family, um, but you grow and develop yourself from the and um, it is a lot of life is driven by self. So who we are, our identity, what we think, what we do, how we act. So I think that's a big, a big lesson to learn for, for a lot of people rather than making others our puppet masters or making them more accountable than we are. That's a big thing. And that links to Benjamin Franklin in that, you know, this is one of the highest achieved human beings of all time. Without question, what he achieved in his life was, was phenomenal. Uh, from his background as well, and what he did with his influence um, to shape and cultivate the character of other men and you know contributions to society. But there's one thing about that book where he he performance managed it himself on Saturday evenings. So he looked at a framework of 13 habits or vices, and he, he would literally go through and seriously question whether he's lived up to his own expectations on a weekly basis. He did it for... You know, a, a period of time, but I think it helped shape who he who he was and who he became and, and where he focused his, his his energy. So I thought that was that was great in terms of you know delivering your best self and and creating your best life. So I like that focus. Ah, oh, fab. Oh, well, I look forward to reading reading both those. Ben, congratulations on number one on Amazon and your book launch. Thank you very much, and thank you for chatting with me today about employee experience yeah thank you very much good to meet you thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did if you'd be kind enough to leave a review it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community for all information relating to this episode you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast where you'll find some cracking show notes additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.